0: we pray that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys. So what if I told you that I was a Christian, but I never went to church, never read the Bible, I never prayed, and I never spent time with other Christians? Would you be a little bit concerned? Uh, I would be a little bit concerned. Uh, The first question would be, for me, what do you actually think it means to be a Christian? And now, so what I want to make very clear is I don't think that doing these things makes us a Christian. It might be easy for us to identify a problem when it seems like there's something missing, but what if we were to look at uh, maybe extras that we add on to being a Christian, right? Let's think of some of the extras of being a Christian that we might add on to uh, this identity today, so what comes to your mind if somebody was to say you're you 're supposed to be a Christian, what does that mean to our world? How would you add something that might not be from the Bible into the identity of Christians? A- anybody got an iPhone this morning? Okay, okay, did you guys all get the same notification that I got about how American evangelicals were playing a huge part in political things going on, right? So maybe there's some sort of particular political ideology that goes with being an evangelical Christian, at least in America. That seems to be a suggestion by the world. Oh, what, what else comes to your mind, guys? We see who the coffee really hit this morning. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Okay, yeah, people who do good. All right, yeah, do good. Mm, it's like a good bar. You guys remember that? It's not true, don't say it. Okay, maybe moral people. Yeah, right, maybe a couple more, something that comes to your mind. Christians are to the world. Goody goodies. 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 That was a better way than saying that. Nice. <laughs> Goody goodies, okay, moral people, good people, people maybe of a particular uh, political ideology. What, what else comes to your mind? Okay, yeah, that actually used to be a really uh, highly emphasized thing about Christians, that they were charitable, that they gave well. But today, if you were to think of that, is that really maybe true? It sh- we would want it to be true, but it's probably more likely that Christians are looked at as those that are, like, um, like cheap. They hold on to what they have, and they don't want anybody else to, to have it. Frugal, yeah, frugal comes to my mind. Right? It's a better way of <laughs> saying cheap, right? Okay. <laughs> So there might be all sorts of different things that we put into being a Christian. Say someone goes to the church regularly. Say they actually read the Bible. Say they spend time with other Christians. But they say something along these lines. If you want to be a real Christian or if you want to be a good Christian, then you have got to fill in the blank. Have you heard this before? This has come, right? And when the fill in the blank doesn't actually come from the Bible, we usually have a problem. There's an issue that's at hand. But when the fill in the blank is something that we can actually kind of line up with the Bible, then we have some investigating to do. The Galatians have basically been handed an argument that lines up where they're hearing this. If you want to be a good Christian, then you need to follow Jesus and obey the Old Testament laws perfectly. That's the argument they're hearing. Now, that sounds a little bit like the Bible, but it's a distortion of what the Bible says, okay? Paul, as he hears this argument, he's less than impressed with the theology that's at hand. He's less than impressed with the reasoning that goes behind this argument. He says that it's a desertion from the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. He also says that not only is it a desertion of the gospel, it's uh, it's also done out of fear of man. Chapter 1, verse 10, I'm, I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? It's something that's done in a manipulative fashion through these leaders. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Because of false brothers brought secretly in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into slavery. Now, these Christians, these Galatians, don't necessarily have the problem of looking like rampant sinners, right? Now, if we were to look at the world and say, okay, that guy's a sinner, we could come up with some sort of ideology that comes into our mind or some sort of uh, action, some sort of framework. But for these Christians, they look squeaky clean, but they've got a serious bad issue. It's more that they're enslaved by a set of rules than they are enslaved by their own rebellious actions. And it's clear from Galatians 2, verse 16, that we are not made right with God by our works or by our actions, but that we are actually made right by faith alone. Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, hear this brothers and sisters this morning, no one will be no one will be justified. By faith alone, we can live in the present and future reality of the gospel. Paul says it this way: I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the flesh, by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith, we live in as those that are crucified with Jesus. By faith, we live as Jesus lives in us. By faith, we are those who are loved and cared for. And that's why Galatians 3 starts off like this, Oh, foolish Galatians. (laughs) That's because... To live under the law, to live seeking our freedom with the add-ons of obedience from things that actually don't rely on the person of Christ, but actually rely on our own individual strengths, isn't to live in freedom. It's to live in foolishness. As we come to the end of chapter 4, Paul is reminding us of our need to stand firm in the gospel. To stand firm in the Lord Jesus and his power and his work. We're not meant to live out the gospel in slavery, brothers and sisters. We're not meant to live out the gospel in a way that accentuates our flesh. We are meant to live out the gospel in power. And how do we do that? By relying on the spirit of God. By being freely united to Jesus. So this final theological takedown, this this big jujitsu move that we're going to see from Paul here, the body slam that's coming is this, that believers find their freedom in Jesus, so we must stand firm against slavery and stand in the, the persevering promises of God. How do we stand firm today? We stand firm by persevering in the faith. So what we're going to see here in Galatians 4, in chapter 5, is basically going to be two brothers with two different stories that represent two different Gospels. And we're going to see that call from Paul to live in firm submission to the Gospel of Christ. So when, it, you, know, when you think of epic battles, there isn't often an epic battle like that between brother and brother. Amen? You guys have seen this, huh? Hey, brothers over there, you guys ever fight? Uh Uh-huh, yeah, (laughs) they got the the head shake and the eye roll, Uh uh-huh, they fight, right? Siblings have rivalries, but if you ever notice this, when sisters, two sisters fight with each other, right, it's usually this big explosion and lots of cries. With brothers, what happens is there's big explosion and fists that fly, right? And then it's all done and over with, right? There is an epic takedown that happens between brothers when they are fighting for what they think is right. Paul begins chapter 4 verse 21 with a sarcastic question. He says this, "Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law?" So he's been defending the truth of the gospel that he proclaims salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and he's been showing these Galatians how it's foolish to trust in something that's in the law rather than trust in the freedom of grace that is in Christ Jesus. Honestly, he's fed up with these guys. He's fed up with their teaching. He's fed up with the nonsense that they're spewing. And they've been claiming to be these experts, but they really don't know what they're talking about. Now, you think of the brother fight, okay, right? Now, there are times, I I get to see this in my youngest, my, my two young ones, right, where if somebody has a toy and the other sibling wants the toy, what do they do? That's mine, Right? That's mine. I want that. I was playing with that first, even though they weren't even anywhere near it. You been there? Uh huh. Yeah, this happens like 36 times a day at the brown house, okay? Where Isla could be playing with something and Maeve all of a sudden is like, nope, that's mine. I want it. I had it back when I was one and a half, right? It's like, girl, you're almost four. You haven't played with that in forever. It's just because your sister has it that you want it, right? Paul is exposing to us how we can be like, the siblings that battle back and forth by following things that are really just about our own power and our own pride and not about the truth and grace of the Lord Jesus. So here he shows us how those who desire to be under the law aren't listening to the law because they're not reading the fullness of the law. So he gives us another example from Abraham. Check out verse 22. We see Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the, man, the free woman was born through the promise. We got two brothers. This is actually Ishmael and Isaac from Genesis chapter sixteen through twenty-one. Okay, so Abraham uh, has these children. He describes them as his two sons who were born from two different women. Right? Does anybody know who the women are here? The text tells us. Okay, what's the text say? Hagar and Sarah, okay, right? Who's Hagar? Anybody know? Yeah, Sarah's enemy, but yeah, Abraham's slave, right? So Abraham's slave that Sarah, in Genesis chapter 16, actually gives to Abraham to marry, because in Genesis 15, God gave Abraham the promise that he would have many children. And so what happens here is Abraham and Sarah, they get a little bit impatient And they decide, in order to fulfill the promises of God, they're going to make sure that it happens. So Sarah goes, okay, I'm old, it's not working, we're not going to have any children, you've got to do this another way, so to preserve God's promises, why don't you go ahead, marry Hagar, and why don't you have a baby with her? Did that work well? No, right? That's that's kind of the point Paul's trying to make here. He's saying that these two sons – Born in different circumstances, in verse twenty-four he says this may be interpreted allegorically. You guys know the word allegorically? It's a weird. It doesn't mean alligator, in case you were wondering, right? Okay. Does anybody know what an allegory is? Okay. Yeah, it could be a mystery, right? Anybody else want to give this a shot? One thing that represents another. It's a picture, right? So the Airdman's Bible Dictionary says this that an allegory is a figure of speech, often an extended metaphor, frequently employed in Scripture. Right? So this is the idea of um, saying something that is normally intended by a different word that's spoken. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is that he is going to use these two people, these two women with their two sons, as a picture to represent something that he sees happening in Scripture. Now, that something is the slavery of the law and the freedom of the gospel. Okay? So, he, co- he starts with, with Hagar. Right? So, he says, these women are two covenants. Hagar represents the covenant that is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, when he says she represents the present Jerusalem... I want you guys to remember what Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 4. There were brothers who came in to spy out our freedom in order to bring us into slavery. What's that talking about? You guys remember Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10? Paul's recounting a story of something that historically actually happened. It's a council. What council is that? The Jerusalem council. This is where... Paul stands before Peter, James, and John and tells them of how the Gentiles have become followers of Jesus. And in verse 4, he says that there are those that are presently in Jerusalem that are trying to bring these brothers and sisters into slavery. So he's connecting the scripture with what's happening right here. Okay, So... Some have argued that Paul waters down the point of what he's saying by using this allegory. And what I'm going to actually argue is that Paul doesn't water it down. He's a master of allegory, and he actually shows how impactful the whole of the Bible is when it works together. So here's what he gets at. The two brothers with their two stories represent the two covenants, one given to Moses, one given to Abraham and his descendants. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, the very place where God gave the law to Moses and his people. And this covenant represents birth into slavery. Paul's making the argument that all of Scripture views the covenant at Sinai highlighting our sin nature, highlighting how we are rebellious against God and how we need a Savior. So he's saying the covenant was given to show us That by ourselves, we run to sin and we don't run to God. Oh boy, (laughs) she's having a rough one. (laughs) In the story of Abraham and Hagar, we see something really interesting for us. Abraham had come to a point where he had the promises delivered to him. That his children would be as many as the grain of the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. Genesis 15, 6 tells us he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. But in Genesis 16, with Sarah and Abram taking Hagar and marrying this woman and then having a child in and of their own flesh to fulfill the promises of God, what they're actually revealing is that they didn't believe God to be good to his promises. Which points to us, a real temptation for us as people. It's what I like to call the gospel of self-reliance. In a similar way, these Galatians, in a similar way, we can rely on rules and regulations to make us right with God or to make the promises of God more realized or more certain to us. The, The false teachers led them to believe that God isn't faithful to the promise of what he said he would do and that he wouldn't actually have right standing with God unless they fulfilled some sort of obligation. And so this starts to form itself into what I call the gospel of self-reliance, where we come to believe that by our actions, we develop right standing with God. That's the gospel of self-reliance in a nutshell. That if we can do it, we can make ourselves right with God. But those who believe in the gospel of self-reliance are believing in something that's a distortion that's really grave and massive. It might seem like a small distortion, but it's really big and really impactful to us. These people may believe that Jesus truly saves them, but in order for them to continue in right standing with Jesus, it's like they have to earn some sort of status before Jesus by what they can accomplish. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. Galatians 3 and 4 have shown us this. That if we want right standing with God, that it comes in a saving faith in Christ alone. And not only that, but in in the reliance of the Spirit of God in our sanctification. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are sanctified by the power of the Spirit as we trust in Jesus by faith alone. You see the connection here? Now, how many of you have ever felt like, man, I just, I'm just not working with the Lord here? <laughs> you, you ever felt like me in this where it's like, man, my, my Bible reading feels dry, my prayer life feels dry. Man, it's January 2024. It's a new time to get, like, get back on the Bible reading trend, right? Get back into this, right, just like we make all of our health promises, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, right? January 1st is like the biggest, most busiest time in the gyms ever, uh-huh. and all the people that actually go to the gym are irritated that there's all these people here. Man, I love those videos of guys like using machines like a bunch of fools, where it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, it's not even what that's made for. <laughs> and man, it's, it, it's like they're, they're trying to do something to change themselves, But here's the thing, when we think of this spiritually, when we're trying to do something with the Lord to change ourselves, we've missed the point. We're transformed, not by our power and might, but transformed by Jesus, by what he's done, what he's accomplished. We fight this spiritual battle, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be obedient to God. We need to be obedient to God, but if we are obedient for the sake of obedience, we're actually missing the entire point. We need to be dependent, dependent on the Lord, reliant on the Lord, right? Jesus said what? I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Now, have you ever thought about abiding? It's it's not a a, a lot of active work, is it? It's a lot of trust, a lot of like, Lord, can can you please do this? I, I've been guilty more times than I can think of of thinking if I'm, not, if I'm more disciplined in my Bible reading, if, I'm more, if I spend more time in prayer, that if I do fill in the blank with God, I'll have better standing with him. But the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the, in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Guys, hear this scripture again over you. I have been crucified with Christ. Notice the things that it says. It says, first, we are united to Jesus. You are with Christ. Those who believe in Jesus have been united to him, and we now live in him by faith. We have been crucified with Jesus. Now, this is actually Paul. He uses similar language in Romans chapter 6 when he's talking about baptism. Right? In baptism, we see a picture of people when they are buried in the water, they are dead to their sin, they've been crucified with Christ, and when they are resurrected or raised out of the water, what are they raised in? They're raised in the power of the Spirit that unites them with Jesus and holds them to him. Brothers and sisters, you, by faith, are with Jesus. And the gospel doesn't say, do it yourself. The gospel says, die to yourself. Trust and rely on Jesus. And Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're even thinking about your next steps. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you feel a little bit shaky where you are right now. Maybe you've been baptized, or maybe you're questioning your baptism as a kid, or, or whatever has happened. If you're unclear about whether you believed in the gospel when you were truly baptized, my question to you now is, do you believe in the gospel to save you? And if you do, are you willing to obey Jesus in whatever it takes to follow him? In the waters of baptism, we have a clear declaration of our unity with Jesus by faith. In baptism, we picture the crucifixion of death with Christ. In baptism, we picture the resurrection, walking in the power of Jesus in Christ. In baptism, not only that, we have the declaration of accountability. We're telling the world, I want to follow Jesus. Will you help me follow him? Unlike our paedal Baptist friends, we're declaring something actively and participatory when we are here by faith declaring what it is that we unite to Jesus in. It's not just some sort of covenantal sign. It is indeed a covenantal sign that leads to transformation. We aren't raised out of the water to rely on ourselves. We're raised in the likeness and power of Jesus to depend on him. It's not the gospel of the self-reliant, it's the gospel of the reliant on Jesus we need. Which leads us to this second picture that Paul brings about here. Not the picture of slavery, but the picture of freedom. Notice. How he continues on. Verse 26 But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise. The child who is born of the Spirit's power. And the promises of God was not Ishmael. It was Isaac. And the underlying emphasis that's here between these two brothers is on the intervention of God. Abraham and Sarah didn't make Isaac happen by their own willpower. Now, now hear me. Yes, they were active, right? They had something to do. You're picking up what I'm putting down, right? They had something to do, okay? It took a little bit of work. But they were not there to perfectly arranged the moment of their conception of Isaac, right? I, I can remember uh, when we had Maeve and we were starting to think about having a, a second baby, right? And we were, we were praying that Isla would come, right? We had all these plans. And we, we thought it would take time, right? Take time to, you know, get pregnant and have a baby again. It was like the first time, man. <laughs> we said, okay, we're not going to do anything to stop this. And then a month later, Rachel's like, we're about to go away for our anniversary, right? We're going on this vineyard trip. It's going to be great and everything. She gets down there and she's like, maybe I should take a test. I'm a little late. I'm like, oh, okay, pregnant. I'm like, well, there goes the whole trip. We have to rearrange what we're doing here. And <laughs> we didn't. Uh, did we plan that? Kind of. Now, did we have that down to the t? No. There were things that we were in control of and things that we were totally out of control of. You see what I'm saying? In the same way, Abraham and Sarah. What they did in Genesis 16 with Ishmael, they tried to be in control of the things that they couldn't be in control of, fulfilling the promises of God. And then when they took it into their own hands, God was gracious, brothers and sisters. Do you see this? God was gracious. Because in, like, Genesis 18 and 19, right, like, when people rebelled against God, what did he do? He wiped them out. But he had faith, and, and Abraham was counted righteous by his faith, and God remembered his promise to Abraham. And the promise wasn't necessarily about what they would receive, but God being faithful to his word. He remembered. And the text tells us even when we see the, the like, conception of Isaac, it says God remembered Sarah. And he remembered Abraham. And he remembered what he said to them. That's why they were pregnant with this baby. Not because they were trying on their own, but because God remembered his promise. And so God intervened in their life. He intervened in a way where he did what only he could do, not by the power of man, but by the power of God. So back to the picture. The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother what? We got two different Jerusalems that are going on here, right? The Jerusalem below, which represents what? Slavery, right? The Jerusalem above, which represents freedom, which says she is our mother. And then in verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1, which is meant to be a helpful picture to us of how he's trying to point all this to worse. In Isaiah 54, God is speaking, and he is promising to his people that there are going to be a remnant that belong to him, not because of their nationalistic identity, but because of his promises. And notice what he says. Rejoice, O barren one who does not break. Now, what is God going to do? How does God work and intervene in the the lives of his people? By using the people that seem the least likely. That's what he does. Those that seem, are barren. They've, they haven't had their children. God's going to take those and bring his promises through those, which makes us go, how could that be possible? That's the point. God does the impossible. She's going to be the one who breaks forth and cries aloud. The one who was desolate will have more than those of the one who has no husband. Actually, we should be hearing the the like echoes of of Genesis, as well as 1 Samuel, where Hannah was crying out to the Lord because she didn't have a child, and then when she had that child, she dedicated him to the Lord. And then in verse 28, Paul applies this then to the Galatian believers. He says, so you brothers are like Isaac, children of freedom. So he gives us this underlying truth. He's giving us a theological point that if we rely on the law, we're not actually the free, promised people of God. We're actually those that are enslaved to the promises that have now been taken in Jesus. It's like going to something that doesn't work. And now he's saying, but if we believe in the promises of God through Jesus and by faith we trust in him, We are the children that belong to all of his promises. Not by their own work, but by the intervention of God. So what are they supposed to do with this, right? I'm glad you asked that question. Paul answers. In the text, he tells us, verse 29, but just is at the time when he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. You might be thinking, what does that mean? That doesn't say anything about how I'm supposed to act. Hear me out for a moment. Notice what the text is saying implicitly, but not explicitly here. We are going to face persecution. Hey, did you guys think that following Jesus would be easy? Somebody promised that to you? No. Like, following Jesus is difficult. It's not easy to us. It's hard. Because we face opposition. He gives us this exhortation, this reality. It's not easy to live a gospel-centered life. The gospel changes everything. And the outcome is indeed guaranteed that we will be with Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face hardships. What it does mean is that we rely on the Lord. We will be okay but I also just want to push back against the idea that a gospel-centered life means that we just go on with life, right? Have you heard anybody that's like, I've got Jesus, I'm okay, whatever the world faces, whatever it throws, right? They just kind of live the New England, I'm all set life. Now, that's not the kind of gospel transformation that we see in the Bible. The The kind of gospel transformation we see is like in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Brothers, I now appeal to you, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. The kind of idea that, okay, now I've got the gospel, and now we're just going to go on and everything will be okay, and I don't need to engage in anything, and I don't need to be involved in anything, is contrary to what we see in the Bible. There's a number of areas that this can touch, whether it's politics, relationships, you name it. New Englanders live in a post-Christian society. You guys see that, right? Like people are natural well, I don't want to say naturally, but kind of naturally, inclined to just being oppositional towards Christianity. We see that, right? We're just hard people with hard hearts and hard soil. We can understand the reality of being persecuted for Jesus. I think the main point that I want to drive home for us on this, though, is not to give up because it's hard. Don't give up just because it's hard, and don't give up because you don't just see results right away. Keep pressing on. As I'm thinking about 2024, this is my seventh year of being the pastor here. I've completed six years, few more gray hairs, few more pounds, but we're into seven years. <laughs> and you know, I've got to I've got to be honest that. The last six years have been wonderful. I've enjoyed them so much. I've seen the Lord do some incredible things. I mean, only by the grace of God can we say that we're here with the people that are in this room right now. That is 100% true. Only by the grace of God. And as I've seen the Lord do incredible things, there's something within me that just feels like we're just getting started. It doesn't feel like we've arrived. And my heart longs for more for our church. But not more necessarily in the sense of like, I don't know, materialism. More more of Jesus. More of a community that like knows his presence and is reaching others because of him. It feels like now is the opportunity to not just chug along, but to be a church that when we say the gospel changes everything, it's not just a nice motto but a a people that live that. You know, I want to be a force for the gospel. You might be thinking, what is that? It's not Star Wars force, right? I'm not talking about that. By a force for the gospel, I mean a force of people who pray, that depend on God. That when we say the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We really believe that. be a force for evangelizing this community. There are 10,000 people here in Hebron, and a sprinkle of them here in this church. And how many more need Jesus? They're people to reach. But not just for the sake of saying we have reached them, but for the sake of reaching them with the gospel, the hope that's within us, to see this community changed by hope through the gospel going forward in and through our people. It'll be a force for hospitality in our neighborhoods. I want our church to be known in our neighborhoods for opening up our homes and being there when no one else will be there. It'll be a church that has gospel influence. When I say influence, what I mean is that when this community thinks about this church, they say something is different about them. Something's attractive about them. That they would know without a shadow of a doubt that the main thing about us is that we want to reach people with Jesus. That they can't separate our church from Jesus. I want to be that. I think we're just getting started. And I think there's work to do. What does that mean? opposition is going to come. Now, we can get riled up about that, right? Like, does that excite you? Uh, That excites me. But here's the thing. When we go out of the doors today, or you go across the street to buy a cup of coffee, those people are not going to be that excited that we're excited about Jesus. When you go back to your desk on Monday morning, chances are people are going to be like, why are you talking? I haven't had my coffee yet. Right? But that shouldn't stop us. It shouldn't stop us. It should fuel us. Notice what Paul says in in response. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. How can we press on? Only by remembering that where we once were, enemies of God, we've been taken out and made children of light, children that belong to him that can cry out, Abba, Father, so that we can remember, hey, you know what? The opposition's going to come, but I hear the good news. Jesus is with me. That's the only way how. To remember, but also to know that while we face opposition, we must reject the false messages that come. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Rejecting false messages. The temptation is gospel extra stuff. Whether it's social justice, prosperity gospel, legalism, we have to reject the false gospels. What's our hope? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rejecting false gospel messages means that you listen well, guys. That you hear from people what it is that they think, you know, I am so easily tempted just to be like, okay, this is what those people think. I make up my mind before I even talk to them. We need to ask better questions. We need to be willing to ask the question, what do you actually believe? And Usually when we talk to people, they actually give away to us what they do believe. Can you hear what they value? Can you hear their worldview? Can you hear how they're living? Don't just listen, though, speak, and ask questions. Say things like, can you explain what you mean by this? Can you tell me why you believe that? And notice chapter 5, verse 1. This is actually where the the thought concludes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So if we're to know that we are to persevere because opposition is here, we're to reject the false messages that are there, Notice what Paul then says next, stand firm. Anybody like Braveheart? Anybody see that movie? Dude, yes, right? That movie, oh yeah. when Mel Gibson's on the horse in that battle scene, right? And he's like going out and he's like, I'm just going to take him over, right? I'm just like, yes, right? It gets me so amped up. That's not stand firm. Stand firm is not an attacking position. Stand firm is a defending position. It's a defensive position. It's like an anchor that's rooted in the sand that will not move. We're to stand firm. As I was reading commentaries on this. One author pointed out how Paul uses the same kind of language in Ephesians 6, where he's talking about the armor of God. You, know, you think of armor? Mel Gibson's back on the horse, buddy, right? And you're like, let's go. No. That's not the kind of armor Mel's wearing. That's not the kind of armor we're called to wear. We're called to wear the armor that the watchman in the tower wears. To look out. To see what's coming in. To call out when the enemy's on his way. And what's our job? Our job is to hold the fort. When people say, stand firm, they think of Braveheart, and they think of getting out into the battlefield, and it's unwavering. That, that's a good picture, but when, the, when we see this, we're, we're talking about the holding down the fork kind of guys here. Guys, here's the news. We all want the Mel Gibson Braveheart kind of guy, but remember what happened to him? He died for his cause, and then his cause kind of what? Fell away. Can I tell you something? There's somebody better than Mel there's Jesus. Jesus has gone out and he's fought the battle, but not only that, he's won. He won. Yeah, he died, but he was buried and he rose from the grave. We think of fighting against the satanic forces of the day, fighting against the evil one, as like get out and get in the battlefield. Brothers and sisters, Jesus already got out and he won. He won. He got out there and he stood in our place and he died for us and he defeated the evil one. We don't need to hope that we can hold down things because, you know, the walls are going to crumble in. The good news is this, we hold down the fort because we have victory. Maybe we think defensive position, everything is going to end. No. We're standing in a positive defensive position here. It's been won. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Christ is conquered. He has conquered. He has won the, the battle. He's given us victory. Unlike the forts of this world, the fortress of the church will not fall because we stand in Jesus. Jesus said, I, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, a defensive position. The enemy is going to come knocking, but guess what? Our door won't budge. Why? We have victorious Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. Okay, I'm not saying we're not going to be tempted. I'm not saying that we're going to not lose soldiers along the way. I'm not going to say that we're not going to have failings and that everything's going to look like rainbows and unicorns and frolicking through the flowers. That's not what I'm saying. This isn't Spongebob. We're talking about the church. You know, one of the things that I think Satan's actually done to attack us today is actually given people the thought that the church is somehow failing in God's design. Right? We hear things like Well, there's another moral failure, sexual abuse scandals. We hear of somebody who's committed adultery, that's a pastor and failed in leading their church, or laundered money. I'm not saying people aren't people. We're all people. We're all sinners inside of heaven. And and somehow we've thought, you know, we see people de-churching and deconstructing, We've seen leaders fall. We've seen real problems in the system. I'm not saying that there aren't problems in us, but the problems rest in us. Do you hear that? In us. We are sinners. Jesus is not. No doubt I've seen churches fail. No doubt I've seen church hurt. No doubt I've seen moral failings. I'm not hiding under the rock and saying these things never happen. In fact, I see them more often than I, I want to see them but there's something that the Bible keeps bringing me back to. What's God's mission for the world? To build his kingdom. How? Not through a government, not through an individual, through the church. Through the church he wants to build his kingdom. I don't think Jesus is messed up in his plan. We are the vehicle that God has decided to use to bring about his kingdom. People are sinners, but Jesus is faithful. He wants to use his church, his redeemed people on mission, making disciples, that is, teaching others what he's commanded, standing firm against the gates of hell, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, A people who are praying, a people who are waiting, a people who are engaging, a people who are singing his praises, a people who are gathering around his word, a people who are living with one another, a people who are trusting, a people who are hoping, and a people who are looking. Are we standing firm? Are we standing firm? God's plan A is his church. So let me ask you this. Will you be sold out on his plan or are you going to try to fill it in with some sort of alternative? God's going to use imperfect disciples to point people to a perfect Savior, to worship, disciple, reach, and multiply. And he's invited us. He's invited us into this this wonderful project with all of our imperfections. these two brothers with these two stories point us to the two Gospels, either the Gospel of self-reliance or the Gospel of total dependence on Jesus and Jesus alone. We're saved in what? Into freedom, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You want to stand right with God, how do you do that? You stand against the Gospel of slavery and stand in the Gospel of freedom, depending on Jesus. Stand with the church. Stand with others. But the standing offer looks like isn't like sexy and attractive. It's it's like this. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the kind of stand we need. It's like, how are you gonna do it? I don't know. But I trust. How you gonna provide? I don't know, but I'm gonna pray. How you gonna do it? I don't know. But I'm preach the word and be faithful. Christianity, hey, let me give you a little update, doesn't need another hero. We've got one. We just need to take him at his word. Amen? Let's ask God to give us the ability to rely on Him. That's our big need, to rely on Jesus to see him do it and to believe that he will. Father, we, we pray that you would do what only you can do. God, build your church. God, use us. Help us to rely on you and not on ourselves. Give us wisdom, God. Give us faith. Help us to be good stewards. But help us more than anything to be a people who sold out for Jesus through his church for your purposes and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. All right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together, okay? This is what I want you to do. Just turn around and pray with the people that are near you. Just two things to pray for today. Pray that we would be less self-reliant, okay, less self-reliant, and pray, secondly, that God would build this church. You guys want to see the Lord do something? I want to see the Lord do something, amen? You guys want to see that too? Here's how it's going to happen if we ask him, if we ask him and trust him to deliver. So let's go, let's ask the Lord to help us to rid ourselves of ourselves and to trust him to do what he can do, amen? All right, let's take a few minutes and go ahead and pray with the people near us.